Welcome to Bio-Citizen Banter, a podcast dedicated to environmental philosophy featuring lively discussions between people active in the effort to bring biotic health and diversity to our communities and commonwealth. Hi everybody, this is Kurt Heidinger, Director of Bio-Citizen. In this banter, I engage two of our foremost environmental philosophers in a discussion about what Aldo Leopold meant by the terms biotic citizen and the land organism. Baird Callicott is a founder of the field of environmental philosophy, a distinguished professor and an influential educator on the global level, a former president of the International Society for Environmental Ethics, the co-editor-in-chief of the Encyclopedia of Environmental Ethics and Philosophy, and the author of many essential texts, including Companion to Sand County Almanac and Earth's Insights, a multicultural study of ecological ethics from the Mediterranean basin to the Australian outback. Ricardo Rozzi has bantered here before about the biocultural conservation projects he is propelling with his teams here in Chile and around the globe. He's the editor-in-chief of the Springer book series, Ecology and Ethics, and recently the recipient of the Eugene Odom Award for Excellence in Ecology Education, bestowed by the Ecological Society of America. Presently, he is directing the construction of the Cape Horn Research Center in Puerto Williams, Chile, the southernmost town in the world, so that the biocultural history of that sublime region is understood and celebrated, and so that some of the ideas and values you hear us expound, question, and wonder about are nurtured and advanced. I am so happy, Baird, that you agreed to do this. Ricardo and I have been friends for so long, and one of the first things that Ricardo ever did when I met him at the University of Connecticut was uh, start talking about all the Leopold and ask, have you, you know, read The Companion? Because I actually had read Leopold and found Leopold to be almost kind of diffident with my first taste. And then as a scholar in the English department, I was, of course, reading a lot of uh, critical essays and such, but no professor that I had wanted to touch or even knew of Leopold. And so Ricardo was like, you have to read this. And I did. And I was like, cool, very cool. This is um, literary. This is philosophical. And we used Leopold as a bridge because Ricardo, as you know, lives in many worlds simultaneously, but has that um, hard science background. And so it became a bridge uh, for us to have discussions and later to teach together uh, an interdisciplinary course. But you, Baird, were also a bridge between us, and, and you came to the University of Connecticut and spoke. Oh, yeah, I remember that. At the Teal Lecture, and I uh, <clears throat> was just like, oh, I think uh, I just liked your whole demeanor. You know, I guess in some ways that's important to me. You know, the vibe was uh, very, very scholarly, but uh, you had a, a humanity that was just warm, and you were wearing some nice threads, too, that weren't so scholarly, and I appreciated that so much because I came to academia actually from New York City after mm-hmm. mixing sound at the Knitting Factory, which was an avant-garde jazz club. So when I got involved in academia, I was almost laughing all the time at the kind of seriousness and the puffery and the ritualism. And so I was that was very cool. And... I've had a chance to look over the companion again 
and some of your work and was talking to Ricardo last week just to, to acknowledge that a lot of the stuff that I read way back in like the you know, over 20 years ago that you had written has stayed with me. And I must have, uh, you know, transferred that enthusiasm and also a lot of the things that you've written to other students. Actually, I know I have. So uh, Ricardo and I are people that you've mentored. You are our teacher. And thank you. Well, thank you for the compliments. I really appreciate that um, very deeply. Thank now you. I'm going to move to Ricardo. Uh, Can I interject, Kurt? Yes, definitely. <laughs> I do remember the TUCs. And Bert, I don't know if you remember, but you started with a statement that time. I, um, I think you referred to Confucius, saying, if I would be the king or if, if I would be kind of governing, I would start changing the words. That was kind of the initial statement of the... <laughs> Rectify names is the, uh, is the translation in the English. If I were the, the governor of the state of Way, the first thing I would do is to rectify names. <laughs> That's, well, yeah, that was a kind of <laughs> powerful statement, yes. <laughs> what a great introduction. We all share some sort of affiliation with the work of Aldo Leopold and of the Sand County Almanac. And we'll be talking for the next hour or so about some of his ideas and riffing off of them. Leopold had a career that ended abruptly where it doesn't seem like he actually finished the work that he wanted to do. And that's one of the frustrations that I have with Leopold that at the end of the Sand County Almanac, when I'm finally going, oh my God, this is getting exactly where I need to be, where he discusses the idea of the biotic citizen and the land organism. It's more of a conclusion. And for me, that was the beginning. Ricardo, how do you find yourself making contact with, with Leopold? One thing that... Um complements each other, I think, in this meeting is what we do and what we have been doing. And Bert writes beautifully and is inspiring. <laughs> you have been kind of with a vision, and I tried to have action in this too. And when I started at UNT, the first thing I did, I do remember, I invited Carl Leopold, one of the sons of um, Aldo Leopold, and it was really coincidence. It was nothing planned. But he just gave such a beautiful presentation saying to your question, Court, uh, to the students and all who were there, well, we went every weekend with my father and we didn't want to miss the opportunity to the shack, to do restoration. He talked about the shovel and the work in the field. And then knowing that Aldo Leopold himself gave his life during a fire, during a fire in, in a prairie, 
Yes, that's not a concept only. It's how you are committed to life, and so it's an exemplar life in that sense. And the other thing that is very important is how he was open to change during life. He had one vision, and he said, no, this does not work. And he learned, and he has a dialogue with Elton, the British ecologist, but he has a dialogue with wildlife wildlife management people with the students and with his family. So, yes, he's very present in that spirit because that's what I think we try to do, and I emphasize that part of action, and that was a coincidence, and I think you were there, Bert, uh, Bert and Kurt together. We, we shared that moment with Carl Leopold, which was in 2004. Well, you remember exactly. Um, this is the thing that I most admire about Ricardo, and that is that, and this is a key difference between his work and mine, uh, uh, Ricardo's impact on the real world has been absolutely enormous. Like I, he's established single-handedly a biosphere reserve. That's, that's uh, a lifetime accomplishment, but that's only one accomplishment um, that uh, Ricardo has made uh, in the real world, so to speak, with a shovel in his hand, uh, just like uh, Aldo Leopold. For my part, I must admit that I've always approached Leopold um, less as uh, an inspiration for action, uh, because it's just not my nature. Uh, but uh, rather as a philosopher and trying to make a difference in the, in the world of action through the means of ideas. Uh, and I, I still think that that is a worthwhile and important thing. It's not just all talk. And uh, like uh, many analytic philosophers, uh, just solving arcane puzzles, but trying to make a difference in the world uh, through the power of ideas. Well, that's a very humble comment, because one of the things that I do like about Leopold and the Sand County Almanac is how frustrated he actually is with the academic industrial complex. There are all these asides where he's like, you know, the average hunter and gardener would know these things, but when I go to the university, nobody even recognizes these insights. And in fact, when he's talking about the amateur birders as being probably the best ornithologists, things like that. So what you both have done actually is brought uh, this biocentric perspective, which you know is a kind of more general way of describing what Leopoldianism is, into the university system that is still very industrial. Um, just to add one uh, item to the list of the people that Aldo Leopold worked with, hunters, fishers, wildlife managers, his family, farmers also, farmers, mm. uh, because in some ways that was his, the, the, the mission of his first job was um, University of Wisconsin-Madison is a land-grant institution, and that means that the university is supposed to transfer its knowledge to the local 
uh, citizenry. And um, so this was extension work uh, in a way. And Leopold was trying to get farmers to grow a wild crop as well as a domestic one uh, in their in their back 40, in their wetlands and things like that. And he had an experimental game farm um, called Riley uh, that uh, partnered uh, city hunters with um, rural uh, farmers. Just a detail. <laughs> <laughs> The Biocitizen School that I direct, we kind of stole our name from the Sand County Almanac. We're at towards the end. Leopold launches a neologism called the Biotic Citizen and links it to another concept called the land organism. And so I've gone ahead and, and been teaching this <laughs> for 10 years, and I'm not sure I even know what I, I'm talking about. What do you think? he was trying to say when he he came up with this idea of biotic citizen you know one of the things that I think that I did early on where my work with Leopold was concerned is to focus uh, on the land ethic and not a Sand County Almanac as a whole and I, in my later work with the Leopold Legacy, I realized that that was a big mistake and that the whole of the Sand County Almanac, I think, has a single overriding theme that Leopold is trying to convey, but to convey in a way that doesn't sound like a lecture or a preacher or anything like that. So in line with what Ricardo is suggesting about Leopold, he presents it in story form first. These are the Shack sketches. And then in the second part of San County Almanac, sketches here and there, which were essays written later, I mean, earlier, actually, uh, than the, the first part, he begins to introduce these ideas. He talks about evolution. He uses the word. He talks about ecology. Uh, and so the theme that Leopold is driving throughout the entire book is what I call an evolutionary ecological worldview. He's, his project is, is enormous. He is trying to change our paradigm from consumerism and from uh, a kind of um, the legacy in the West from from religion and philosophy that centers the world on human beings. And so the idea of a biotic citizen is to make us feel that we are embedded in and dependent upon and responsible for the 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 I don't want to say natural environment, but but the 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 interacting, rich and and um, 
and alive and conscious world around us. Ardo, do you have any thoughts? I, I, I think what Bert says is very appealing in the sense that biocitizen has these two particles, bio and citizen, no? And so this dialectical conjunction expresses this, that we are members of a community that's broader, but also I think as citizen, it compels a, a sense of duty and responsibility for the community. Uh, and uh, it's interesting because cities, the city environment where the concept of nation state emerged in the Athens and the Greeks, it's very human-centered. So it has something that's very interesting that in this dialectic, that by being members as humans, we have a responsibility. But it's curious that he chose the word citizen, which is kind of referring to cities, to the walls around the medieval cities. So it's attention there. It's a bio-citizen. So we are responsible. We are members. I, I see it's kind of uh, an invitation. It's more kind of exalted. And I have been working with that term in, in a dialectical way with the notion of co-inhabitant, as you know. And I, 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 I thought about co-inhabitant also in analogy to companions. And Leopold used the concept of companions in the odyssey of evolution, fellow members. And, and I was really interested that companions in the origin meant sharing bread, companions. And I thought, that's cool, because what we are experiencing today with COVID and all that, it's very clear that we do share the habitat. That's a fact. But not only we do share the habitat, but we have a duty to share the habitat as we do have a duty to share the bread. So if we, we don't have the concept of co-inhabitant, then we are lost because we eat all the bread, we eat all the habitat, we will be failing and all the rest will be failing. That would be Unjust. So, biocitizen is very interesting because it has that Aristotelian tension, let's say, of a responsible citizen, but with the Aristotelian burden of city. So, it's an interesting tension there in that concept. Wow, that was great. Sir, would you like to to add to that? Only to say that uh, that was the most remarkable uh, trans transition from the bio-citizen to the co-inhabitant uh, and the companion. And putting all of those ideas together, Ricardo, was just brilliant. I <laughs> left speechless. Okay. Well, you might be interested to know that when you read Hannah Rent and the origins of totalitarianism, she's very clear that there are no rights and no laws enforceable or even acknowledged without the citizen status. So the Biotic Citizen is a project, and Leopold linked it to this thing he called the land organism. What is the land organism, do you think? And, and what connection might it have to the Biotic Citizen? Okay, this is um, 
This, I'm, I'm going to apologize here because I'm going to get down in the weeds where the history of ecology is concerned. So the very first paradigm in uh, ecology represented the uh, what they called at that time plant formations, a term coming out of uh, going back to von Humboldt, uh, as a superorganism. And uh, so the idea was basically a sort of evolutionary idea. First, there were single-celled organisms, which by association became multi-celled organisms. And then Clements thought that multi-celled organisms associated in such a way to create another level of biological organism. Uh, and um, uh, that idea uh, sort of fell out of fashion and was replaced, I think, due to some extent in Leopold's thinking by Charles, his friendship with Charles Elton. And that's the representation of uh, the relationship of plants and animals in terms of a, of a community model. So those are very two different models. Uh, and I think that towards the end of Leopold's life, the uh, superorganism idea was coming back into ecology through the concept of an ecosystem. The ecosystem idea, especially in the hands of Gene Odom, uh, sort of revived this organism idea. And I think it appealed to Leopold because of his frustrations with his um, idea that he could manipulate the world uh, as a wildlife manager and that everything that he predicted uh, would actually come out. He was beginning to see, no, no, this is far more complicated a system than just factors we can manipulate food and predators and so on and grow a crop of wildlife that we want to um, that we want to achieve. So I think he started talking about the land organism because he began to see that it was far more complex and far more tightly integrated uh, than he at, at one time thought. And I really think that Leopold in some ways contributed to the development of the ecosystem idea because he got to the notion of energy flow uh, before it became one of the pillars of the ecosystem paradigm. So I think that Leopold, in other words, is is drawing on his deep knowledge of ecology in and his experience again on the land to um, revive this oldest of uh, ecological paradigms. Now, uh, Ricardo is an ecologist, so I'm sure he may have some uh, some pushback on that idea. <laughs> No, I I like very much what you're saying, but we were revisiting with a governor in Chile this weekend over the phone, and essay you had on the idea of wilderness and the history of 
the Ecological Society of America then gave uh, origin to the Nature Conservancy, those that decided to take the risk of not being objective and just studying the land organism, so to say. And um, so I, I think let's weave this together. And it's curious. I am. Uh, <laughs> I, I would like to to again say that land organism has these two parts: land and organisms. And bird refers to farmers, which I think explains a lot. And it's also something for those that are listening to this program. Is so important to recover this notion of praxis as important as theory. They go very together and they converse. So you learn things. And the farmers, it's very important to understand the land. And not only to understand the land, to understand culture in the sense that farmers cultivate the land. But by cultivating the land, cultivate themselves. And that is something that Carl Leopold actually highlighted, talking about his father, Aldo Leopold, in the power of restoration ecology, in the sense not only to restore landscapes and the biophysical realm, but also the health and the understanding in the health of the people that practice restoration. So land become not only a noun, an object, is something that is kind of practical, it's a verb, it's an action. That's the, 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 the first kind of way for me to complement a little bit from this perspective of practice what land might mean for Aldo Leopold, who is a wildlife manager with deers, wolves, the, the pines, restoring. So it's not something that he's outside. It's with the hands like a farmer embedded into it. And then the other concept of organism, there, I, I, again, I am really uh, provoked by these rectifying names that <laughs> was what you said. And I think I would like to rectify the name of ethics in the sense that <laughs> I remember I was one night and Bert was in his office, and I said, Eureka, it's got it again, with this notion of ethos as kind of a protected land. I was reading Pinder that night, and he uses the word ethos and, uh, for the fox that has this den, where the fox has the ethos where the little foxes are there, I said, that's exactly the land that is protected. I mean, you, you, it's not only a place, but it's a place that you protect. So now talking about organisms and this idea of Le Aldo Leopold, he had this clear understanding that we humans are an organism among other organs. That's very important. So land as a verb inhabiting together with others and I would say that Aldo Leopold really is beautiful in the way that he has symbols, metaphors, and actual biophysical beings to which he represents, uh, he, he, he refers. In the land ethic, one image that it's very important for me and is this mental image. And he called that section the pyramid. However, when I go through the land ethic by myself and teaching the land ethic, I focus on the tree 
because in that passage he refers to a tree and the sap flowing through a tree and that is an analogy that I think is richer than Charles Elton <laughs> image of just a trophic chain because really what happens there ecologically really is kind of an energy flow also a material flow of sugars water and other mutants that are coming from the land from the earth to the tree and from the tree down from the photosynthesis so it's kind of a very transformative thing so the the tree we would not argue if it is an organism or not it is an organism but here symbolically Leopold makes the analogy that's a watershed and that it's work like a tree with a river and yeah there are things that are analogous and things that are different however what I think is very interesting with all this land organism now rectifying names <laughs> is that is that shaking to the reader first we are like farmers the land influences us and we influence the land and we will we will be both good if we do the practice well and second it's a fact again we we are kind of organisms among other organisms so let let us like the fox of pinder Let's take care of the little foxes, the place we share, and ourselves too. <laughs> so for me, it's, it's a very powerful image. Uh, that is what it is. It's a beautiful metaphor, and I don't have an idea. I don't think that anybody would have. If, I mean, the world is the symbols. The, I, I, I stop there. <laughs> they invite us to act and to orient our actions. So I think it's a beautiful image. That, of course, is not exactly like a tree, but it has the power of an analogy there. Any thoughts, Baird? Well, yes. Uh, uh, further, I mean, Leopold died in 1948. And uh, as I was saying before, the ecosystem idea was uh, just at that point uh, beginning to be fully articulated. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, although the ecosystem concept remains uh, the most important uh, concept in ecology, it, it's, it, it, it be begins to be ontologically a little bit uh, less robust, shall we say, than the tree. Of uh, <laughs> uh, Ecosystems are difficult to bound in some sense, the questions that we ask uh, determine the size and scope of the, the boundaries are fuzzy, organisms are coming in and out, uh, it's not a tightly closed and uh, bounded system like an organism, but I think there's a reason for that. And that is that we were looking at the world at, and and this was of course part of the consciousness of the of, of the times, in ter in terms of just what's right before us, uh, the scale, 
And now that we, after the photos of the Earth from the moon and so on, we see the planet as a whole, and it's not accidental that the organism idea has now become scaled to the planet, and it has a name. Gaia, speaking of rectifying names, <laughs> we, we need to change the name of the Earth to Gaia uh, as, the, uh, as, as the true uh, bearer of the idea of a land organism. This would be a land, ocean, atmosphere, uh, geosphere, uh, biosphere, Organism. One of the things that I've read about the superorganism concept is that some critics actually call it a form of echo fascism. And so that because you all of a sudden have, in a sense, a kind of totalitarian construct. Well, I don't. I don't think it's necessarily a fascist idea. In fact, I don't really see the the connection. Uh, the I think that the main problem with it, and I think that Ricardo would definitely agree, is that it homogenizes humanity as being the the uh, the, the species uh, that is responsible for messing around with the. Uh, sort of uh, not just not tinkering with, but doing some random surgery on the <laughs> on, on the planetary organism, such that it it, it doesn't distinguish between uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 global north, the global south the um, enormous uh, inequalities uh, and therefore responsibilities uh, so that uh, I think that that would be more easily seen as a problem than that it would be fascistic. It, it, it erases very important socioeconomic differences among, amongst us. Ricardo? I do agree with Bert, and I would add one thing that's, I think, critical. Biocitizen is your organization, and it's the concept of Leopold. And Biocitizen invites us to recognize that we are part of something larger. But that doesn't mean that that is a fascist regime. On the contrary, it invites us to be part and acknowledge the community, to serve the community, and also to be served by the community of Iowa. <laughs> and so that is very different. I will leave it there. <laughs> I'm just going to read a little bit of Leopold. The outstanding scientific discovery of the 20th century is not TV or radio, but rather the complexity of the land organism. Only those who know the most about it can appreciate how little we know about it. What do you think is the difference between the land organism and the, quote, environment, if there is any difference. Because we're all taught, you know, environmentalism. Uh, the academic industrial complex has no difficulty teaching the environmental sciences and all that. Do you think there is a difference between the environment and what we just talked about, the land organism? I can risk going first so that Bert can compliment here. <laughs> there is one thing that I feel 
convince and strong to propose to the audience. And one thing that I feel ignorant, and I want to just suggest, the thing I feel very strong is that we don't know. <laughs> but each time we know a little bit more, we discover so many kind of beautiful forms of life, both in symbols, in cultures, and actual living beings. I was watching yesterday the mating of two great horned owls in my yard. And, and I was surprised, this is winter. <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> and it was very beautiful. They have been coming every day around uh, just past sunset, and the males stay higher, the female a little bit lower. The male is smaller than the female and has a loud call, which really, it's kind of beautiful to share. <laughs> and then five days ago, he started to couple to mating. I mean, to make love to the, uh, to the female there. It's beautiful to, to, to watch this. And I learned that, yeah, because great horned owls are large owls, they start earlier <laughs> so that the chicks will come out <laughs> in spring. And I am a biologist, but I am learning every day. And I am very, very surprised also about the beauty of little insects and plants. And I have been kind of, the last year I have been immersed in something I have been trying to overcome, which is this taxonomic bias or taxonomic chauvinism, that we don't see this beauty of so many cultures and the beauty of so many little living beings. So Leopold always make that point, inviting us not to be confident, not to be arrogant. And the land ethic, he has a majestic paragraph, the kind of provoking scientists and the, the readers. Don't think that science knows. The more you know, the more you know that you, there is more complexity there. So I invite the readers to, to be open to this beauty of so many different organisms. And among the organisms, we know so many refinement in their behaviors. Now, what I don't, I'm not so sure, and I would like Bert to comment on this. I understand environment as originated from a word from French, which is environs, and environs means kind of surrounding. It's what is around us. So that could be not a worse word than that, because <laughs> it's, it's kind of perpetuate the divide between culture and the others, and it's not what I am trying to say. The owl is in my dreams when I dream or when I am awake as much as a symbol as a biophysical. So we are so interwoven that environs and environment is a provocative term. I would love that Bert can comment on that. <laughs> yes, indeed, it is. I think it is of French origin, but the French don't use that word for, for the environment. Uh, milieu is the, okay, is, that's my is the translation uh, of uh, environmental, whatever it's milieu in, uh, in French. So uh, the, the word environment and environmental has been the subject of others rectifying names uh, because uh, and although Ricardo didn't make the point specifically he, he gave in effect the problem and that is that it centers us it's, it's whatever is surrounding some subjective center 
And an organism, the idea of the land organism, especially if we scale it up to the level of Gaia, which I think is necessary for the idea to be fully justifiable uh, in, um, in, in this context is that we, we perceive ourselves there not to be in the center. There's no center to Gaia except the center of the earth, which no one wants to be in. Uh, and so it, 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 it gives us a, a more, um, a, a more well-integrated idea and I'm beginning to think uh, one of the the, the um, uh, folk, folks I of my current work is a a reconstruction of the sense of self, uh, which is we've inherited this interiority in which the self is behind the eyes and between the ears, looking out on the environment uh, somewhat uh, fearfully, uh, and to to think of what I call the ecological self or the relational self, in which oneself is composed of the of the many social and um, uh, natural relationships that we have in such a way that we have to see ourselves as intimately connected to and utterly dependent upon for our very identity upon this network of, of uh, relationships. And that will, I think, much enable stewardship because you're taking care of the larger self, that which constitutes oneself uh, in this in this incredibly uh, embedded way that we are in the very body of God. Talk about rectifying words. One of the things that I've always wanted to do since the very beginning was to rename environmental philosophy what would you think about uh the word biosophy instead of environmental philosophy well uh, ricardo has already come up with the idea of biocultural conservation so uh bio, bio well let's say cultural biosophy how about that <laughs> I looked up biosophy, though, and found out that it's already entangled uh, with some type of mystical school. Yeah, my father was, uh, we, we began our conversation by reference to, to him. He was, um, his spiritual affiliation was, was with something called theosophy. So I'm not surprised uh, that there is a biosophy that's, that is, uh, is a kind of new age uh, uh, spiritual uh, movement. And it is interesting that Arnenes and his short provocative article Deep and Shallow Ecology or Shallow and Deep Ecology <laughs> Uh, he concisely refers to shallow ecology as taking care of the symptoms, not the roots of the environmental problems. And then he goes in deep ecology. And the, in the last section, he uses the term ecosophy, kind of as a wisdom. Uh, and, and I like that because um, I think that there's really 
see complementary concepts there, ecology as kind of studying this oikos, this kind of home uh, economy as administrating kind of, which is a challenge, how to actually be fair, just, and do with limited and prudent uh, elements, a kind of a, a fair share there, which brings well-being for all biocitizens, humans and non-humans. And then he uses the term ecosophy as a wisdom. And he refers to Aristotle, also to Spinoza, but I think that section he refers to Aristotle, and I like that because he really, what I, I am invited by Ananes, doesn't mean that I ascribe to him, but I am provoked by him in the sense of a systemic thing. So there is an ontology, which would be the land organism. There is a duty, which would be biocitizen. And he puts them together, but this practical knowledge, we need as much theoretical as practical knowledge. So ecosophy was coined at the beginning of the 70s by Arnenes, and he was a great, how do you say, not a hiker, but he escalated mountain, mountaineer. So he, he also was somehow embedded. But I, I, I don't know, Bert, if that would resonate as a historical kind of term that would kind of echoes what Curtis taught me. I think so. The uh, at this point, I think it's fairly well distanced from uh, Ness's particular ecosophy, so that it doesn't get mixed up with just a sort of doctrinaire uh, deep ecology, as George Sessions and Bill Duvall and. Uh, those guys uh, sort of made it a, a, a fixed doctrine. Arnie was very open about it. it. This is just my ecosophy. You have your ecosophy and, and so on. He was democratic. But getting back to the idea of self, in that essay, you mentioned at the very end, he introduces the term ecosophy, but at the very beginning, he introduces the idea of conceiving oneself as a knot in the biospheric net of internal relations. So he also anticipates the relational or the ecological self, and I give him full credit when in my work I'm working out of his initial pulse. Shepard also, by the way, uh, uh, was getting at that idea where the skin is just uh, not a boundary but a porous zone that connects us with the rest of the world and uh, that we have to expand our sense of self uh, as, as a key uh, way of trying to remedy our relationship with the, uh, uh, with the larger world. Beautiful. What you just said about our skin, and, and you've also talked about farmers, far, for farming, what you are is what you eat. That's a cliche. You know, I think I heard that when I was five years old in the mm-hmm. 60s, and I was like, wow, this hamburger? <laughs> and then it was like, yeah, I guess so. And then what you've just said about our skin, you know, the permeable membrane, one of the ways that I... Um, create a sense of urgency to these types of of lessons in the field is just to ask kids to hold their breath. You know, we, we have a contest 
how, how long can you hold your breath? You know, and, and we all have fun and somebody wins, you know, it's like, yay, there's a gummy bear. But why do we do it? And it's because we're air, you know, it's like we need to have whatever's out there in us. And that's how quickly we'll die. You know, we can die in, you know, 10 minutes, maybe even less. Or less. (laughs) My next question has to do with this this odd predicament we're in where all this stuff is actually self-evident in many ways. It doesn't require, you know, an entire, you know, history of philosophy and of science and of everything to realize these things. And so what I'm... Well, my question is, is why is, is it so difficult for our, our mass populations to get the message, this, let's call it the land organism message, and then to act on it? Why, why do you think it is almost impossible at this point to do that? And, and maybe just to kind of be flexible here, I, I will provoke and Bert can comment. <laughs> I, I, I see, at least see things that we're missing. I hear that we could easily recover, and you are doing that with BioCitizen to some extent, but that could be more extended. One, Western civilization is very rich in stories, cultures, concepts, and we were kind of mutilated. We just are narrow. The humanities, the whole richness of our own civilization has been forgotten with people that were amazed by fishes, by rivers, by forests, jumping to them, farming there, and going beyond Western civilization. That's even more evident today because the image of Western civilization is this homogenized global society, which is I don't I think is unfair because there are many resistance communities in Barcelona, in northern Italy. And we as biocitizen here with UCOR. So the first thing is this narrow presentation of the concept of humans that Bert touched a little bit earlier today. I mean, that's one of my main criticisms, and that is what is called biocultural diversity. And that has been done by anthropologists, uh, but the point is that biocultural diversity is not only about Native American, about Asian or Eastern faraway cultures, it's also within our own cultures. And many of the families of U.S. citizens were farmers at one point. <laughs> they had that connection. The, the two other things is this kind of um, excessive commercial quick emphasis on selling information for students inside the room, a classroom. I think we need more kind of the Socratic method of bringing out what they already know, and that could be done outside in connection with the trees so that we can do the breathing exercise, but also realize that that oxygen is coming from the nearby algae and trees that are where you do the outdoor experience of biocitizen. So I think biocitizen really is this kind of playful uh, setting for education, which it needs to be. We need to enjoy learning. (laughs) And third and final, there is an overstated emphasis and faith on a narrow concept of sciences. 
um, I mean, mathematics is true. They help, <laughs> uh, and they, but they are not the whole story. So the, 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 the analogy, for example, the an analogical thinking by Leopold, who is constantly writing essays and actual experiences, is beyond a mathematical analysis, and he was capable also of mathematics. So I think we need that conceptual barrier, that kind of one-dimensional emphasis in STEM, which is now being changed to STEAM to include the A of arts. <laughs> that needs to be kind of even further broadened. it. So those are my three thinking, and BioCitizen there has... Uh, not only a niche, but a potential and a duty that uh, we're grateful. And if we can help, court, that would be excellent. Yeah, what do you think? Well, I think it's a fairly complicated story. I mean, one of the things that Leopold uh, mentions is that your true modern no longer has a direct connection with the land, except if it's a golf course. I think he says something uh, along those lines, uh, so that uh, we've become divorced from uh, our, our daily uh, and um, well-integrated, I mean, our daily contact with and sense of the dependence on the land. So there's that aspect to it, the practical aspect. I also think, however, that there is a cognitive uh, aspect because although our culture, as Ricardo points out, is very diverse it's, uh, and rich uh, as a heritage, um, many of those aspects of diversity have not found their way into the into the most forceful mainstream of that culture which uh has really emphasized uh human exceptionalism i mean it goes it's not just in the judeo christian tradition it's also plato and aristotle and descartes and so on and again i think that ideas are important and these ideas have become part of the uh, cognitive ether that uh, people uh, inhale so that they don't see them as contingencies, that, that there, there's another way of looking at it. It's this is the way the world is. And uh, that's why I think it's important to study other cultural traditions because we see, for example, if we look at the way the Japanese historically looked at the world, there's an alternative uh, to uh, this uh, mainstream Western heritage. So I think that that's one of the big impediments. And again, I think Leopold agrees. He is a practical person. He is, he does have, as he would put it, uh, dirt between his toes. Uh, and he is working uh, with the shovel in his hand. Uh, but he also, and is and I think if you now reread the San County Almanac with this in mind, he is trying to do something that I call worldview remediation. He's trying to, and he says so right in the preface. The problem is that it's our Abrahamic view of land, the biblical view combined with 
consumerism. We, we want more bathtubs, but we don't know how to shut off the water, he says in his poetic and sort of indirect way. So we've got to uh, get us out of this mindset, this worldview, and uh, look at the world through the lens of evolutionary biology and ecology. And that's what Leopold was doing. And then the land ethic is simply the, 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 uh, the upshot, the ethical implications of this new worldview. I think I've uh, set this out in one of the um, uh, anthologies, one of the collections of papers that Ricardo was editing uh, for uh, Springer, is it? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's right there. Well, I, I'll add a little story. Um, you might be referring to Shintoism, right? There. Shinto, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I had the, the good luck of being able to bring my family to Japan. For them, it was a very aesthetic experience, visiting places like Nara and seeing the way that they had such a reverence for trees that they would braid these gigantic ropes and put them around the trees and that they also had wild deer, you know, running through the middle of the city and such. And one of the things they were fascinated by were stones that were placed together with faces on them. And they wanted to know what those were. And so we discovered that they were ancestors of people who lived in the neighborhood and that they were present in their own way. And then also in each house, there's a a certain area of the house where they have uh, the same type of shrine where they can acknowledge that they they are not alone, that there is a transgenerational self. And it was just really a a great moment to be able to to see, you know, my seven and nine-year-old step back and go, wow, whoa. (laughs) I've never heard of that before. What a great idea. You know, grandma and grandpa, is that what and it was, and so there are so many things that we're lacking that you you both have articulated very well, and I want to push you maybe just a little bit farther as we're nearing the end of our of our delightful discussion. If you could help listeners to to contact the land organism <laughs> to somehow access this reality that we're having difficulty accessing. Are there some things that you would like to recommend that, that they do? You know, some, some practical tips um, to making friends with the land organism? Well, I, I just have a, a small suggestion. Uh, one of the uh, most interesting and delightful uh, aspects of the city of Memphis here is sort of like we have sort of like a central park and it contains uh, some 250 acres of uncut forest. It's called the old forest. And one of the things that the Japanese do is they forest bathe. Uh, You go to a forest and you 
walk and you look and you listen and also you begin, you should bring what you know to the forest. And one of the things that we now know about the forest is that the trees have something analogous to consciousness and communication through their root system and their their symbiotic relationship. So we're getting a sense of trees as not just wood standing there and not just competing for sunlight, but also cooperating in terms of their relationship with the insects and the atmosphere and the water and so on. And you can connect deeply with the trees and the trees, therefore, with the hydrology, the water, with the atmosphere, with the sun, and that is um, therapeutic. Uh, and, And not just therapeutic in the physical sense, or even the psychological sense, but also the cognitive sensibilities as well. Mm. And this is just, it, it, it's an urban environment. Uh, it's uh, right in the middle of a big and very funky city. How about you, Ricardo? Some practical tips for everyday people. Well, um, the first word is slow, doing things slow. And we have shared, the three of us, a little bit, one thing that we have been doing, which is ecotourism with the magnifying glass or with the hand lens. Uh, And this complements what Bert is doing, because when you enter a forest, let's say a forest like this forest in the middle of Denton, an old growth forest, and you use a magnifying glass, you slow down. We need to slow down. And then the whole thing starts to be. Uh, and also, this creates a more intimate connection with beings that we maybe overlook or we look just quickly by passing and we start seeing uh, shapes, colors that are very attractive. <laughs> so we, we get persuaded and, and that gives time. And so I really was uh, motivated by that book, Small is Beautiful, by Schumacher. But here, uh, Small is also kind of so diverse, so appealing. And this is what is going on with many little insects, as Bert was saying, the roots connect themselves. When the fires were in Australia, we really had pains for the kangaroos, the koalas, but think about the beetles, the the worms, the bacteria. So to have that kind of intricate connection with this diversity is beautiful and you can use a magnifying glass. And also one thing that we have been doing in that spirit that could be done with biocitizen because you work with rivers is to jump into the water. And what Bert was saying is you have to be a little bit nervous because it's colder sometimes. You you, you need to not <laughs> sing. You need to... But you start looking... And it's not only water. 
creeks, many, many little creeks of or uh, small invertebrates, a plant there, and algae, and it's really that cognitive transformation that Bert uh, is referring to is kind of in swimming in a river and diving in a river, also very much in a, a kind of emotional connection because you need to swim in order to, so you are one with them. So that's kind of two kind of images that comes to my mind as in a dialogue with BioCitizen. Thank you for those recommendations. I think that people will follow up on them. Court, as a way of saying goodbye and greeting, the, I would like only to emphasize one thing about ecotourism with the hand lens and diving with a mask. That, that creates awareness of the lens. The most invisible aspect in this playful activity of ecotourism with the hand lens is the hand lens or the magnifying glass. Bert has highlighted the importance of worldviews. When we have this mask diving, we are more aware that there is this kind of interrelationship. How we see the world and to think about that concept or that language, that concepts at the same time that we are kind of farmers creating a language that allows us to be closer to the roots of the trees. So just this notion of worldview that is the conceptual lens that is so kind of reaching the kind of the activity. That's that would be that's the metaphor that I often use, a conceptual lens that <laughs> through which our experience is organized. So I have to be off, uh, and um, I thank you both for this opportunity, and it was especially good to see you, Ricardo, and to um, renew my acquaintance with you, Kurt. So thank you very much. It was uh, a lot of fun.